All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this honor really of gathering together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, a faith that you've provided us, a unity that you've provided us by grace. These are the things by which we stand, Father. May we rejoice in them always, as your word says. Father, we thank you for the completed canon of Scripture. Thank you for affording us a day like this to be able to fellowship with you and break bread together. That is the very bread of life, the Word of God. Father, we pray for those that desire to be with us, members of this congregation, that they know that we're praying for them. We pray that you return them to the fold uh, sooner than later, but your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, those that seem to be accelerating even away from your Son. We're so grateful and thankful, most of all, for your Son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. May it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, what is repentance and who gets to define it? Um, I'll start this way, and this is a theme that has been coming from this pulpit for, I think, from the beginning. Uh, of the ministry itself, but more so over the past uh, few years, perspective is everything. And I love it because in a moment's time, if you're having a bad day, a change of perspective can rectify it. If you're having a good day even, let's be honest, a change of perspective can ruin it. And this battle that we're engaged in each and every day really is about maintaining proper perspective because even as believers we can be led astray. Even as believers we can be distracted by the details of life. And the good Lord wants us just to remember what matters in this life. That life here on earth is a drop in the bucket compared to eternity. It's almost silly the amount of time and energy we spend on focusing on things in just the details of life, just the things that um, really are meant to distract us. And so much of that is yesterday, and so much of that is tomorrow. And as the Spirit's been pointing out, yesterday's gone. You can't change yesterday. And tomorrow's not even a reality. We don't even know what tomorrow's going to bring yet. We think we do. We plan as if we're God, but we never know. So one of the beauties of understanding what Holy Scripture has to say about life is learning to live in the now, learning to enjoy today. Like before class, I was looking, you may not think this way, but there's a beam of light coming across the back room there. 
right on the communion element trays and the candle and it's good to see Carol back there and she's all lit up like a little angel over there <laughs> with her crutch. Only one crutch? Oh wow, you're, oh, all right. And it's those little things that really keep us in the now. If we're, if we maintain the right perspective. So up here on the board, we sometimes live as if we're going to live forever on this earth, but we never know how many days we have. There's a lot of people out there that um, say, oh, I'll get to the truth tomorrow. Oh, I'll put the Bible off till tomorrow. I can always read my Bible. I'll double up tomorrow. You know how that goes, right? I'll skip the chapter today or whatever. I'll double up tomorrow and then the, the next day, like, I'll double up three times. And then, you know, and it's like, well... Go to Psalm 139, 16. We're just going to look at some scripture just to help us out on this topic that really our days are numbered. Our perspective matters. Um, Psalm 139, 16. God knows our days. And if our days are few, doesn't it make sense to live in the now? to embrace the now. Psalm 139.16, your eyes, 139.16, your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. In other words, God has your days numbered and they're not that many. Go to job, uh, Job. <laughs> Hey, you know, we're on grace and mercy, so let's show the, you know. <laughs> Job, Job, you know what I mean? Job 14.5. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Job 14.5, learning to live in the now. I mean, we don't even know, I hate to be odd, but we don't even know if we're going to be alive tomorrow. We really don't. Job 14.5, since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. All our days are numbered. So what are we doing? Living in the future. How about Ecclesiastes 3.1? Go there. Learn to live in the now. You have no idea what tomorrow brings. And yesterday's gone. So why live in the anguish of your mistakes possibly or your failures or whatever it is that seems to be haunting you from your own past? Uh, shed that thing. If it really was a transgression, then know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for it and that it's been forgiven. Ecclesiastes 3.1 There is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. And as we just saw in Scripture, God determines the amount of time each one of us is here on earth. But we don't know. So the point is, up here on the board again, learning to live in the now. We sometimes live as if we're going to live forever on this earth. But we never know how many days we have. God does. Not only this, but the more we begin to 
live in the gospel reality, as I like to call it, living in the gospel reality, sharing it, living for others even, the more we realize why each day is precious to God, we begin to realize the following up here on the board. Whoever's flipping pages, could you please stop? Whoever it is. Yep. Up here on the board. Learning to live in the now. God's blessings, up here on the board, God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. You need to think about that. The, as we've been learning, it, the Spirit's been weaving these lessons together as a curriculum to make this point stand out to you. To make this point be the centerpiece of your life that God has left you after He has saved you on earth so that you can fulfill the Great Commission. So that you can live in this thing that I'm calling the Gospel Reality. That you understand your purpose. That your purpose is not to make more money. Your purpose is not to be more successful by the world's standards. Your purpose is not to be nicer to people. Your purpose is to bring the good news out to a world that is desperate, in desperate need of it and in many ways doesn't even know it. So God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. Each day they are alive on earth. In fact, the Lord promises to reward those who obey His command to spread the good news. 1 Corinthians 3, 7-8. Let me read that again quickly. God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. Uh, one of the things that we were talking about um, yesterday with Frank was that... Um, I just got distracted, so I lost my train of thought. Can everybody just settle in? Seriously, just settle in. If you've got something, you want to drink your coffee right now, do it now. If you, guys, you guys are so rowdy from this morning. Just settle down. Just relax. <laughs> uh, I forgot what I was going to say. No, I know. I don't know. I'll read this again, see if it comes to me. God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. I know what it was now. Nobody do anything. <laughs> ADD, help me out here. Look, when you read the Bible, how often do you see, honestly, I'm just saying this, how often do you see um, accounts of Jesus Christ smiling? Or Paul smiling and frolicking in the daisies? Or any of the apostles? Or anybody that's doing this good work? How often do you see, not that they didn't, but how often does that become the peace that we're learning? How often does that um, become the end goal? I don't see it. Am I saying, that, you know, come in here like, uh, you know, Burgermeister Meisterburger? Remember him? Nobody? Nobody? Frowns? Nobody smile? Gray? Dull? No. Enjoy life. Smile. Be happy. Um... Those are part of God's blessings. But that's not the real reason. That's not your purpose. Your purpose is not even to come to church. 
so you can put a smile on your face. Your purpose is to come to church to be equipped. That's what Ephesians 4, 11 and 12 says. For the work of service. For the building up of the body. That's what our purpose is. And we find this joy, this transcendent joy in those things. So you do not have to be smiling all the time. I would argue that a lot of people that put on, that paint on faces like that are phonies in the first place. We are to have a joy set before us. Because as the angels, as we'll see in Holy Scripture, the angels rejoice when one sinner repents. Not because you got a lollipop or you got a new car or you got a new something, a shiny new object that makes you smile for a moment. Nothing necessarily wrong with those things, but that's not your purpose on earth. That just sort of makes the, the, the pilgrimage more palatable, let's say. Maybe you get a wink from God along the way. Great, but that's not your primary purpose. So God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. Each day they are, they are alive on earth. In fact, the Lord promises to reward those who obey His command to spread the good news. Go to 1 Corinthians 3, 7. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Again, this is what the Spirit's been trying to teach us as of late. He's just refocusing us. He's getting us back to, if you want to call them basics, that's fine. But he's getting us back to a perspective that really is um, all important, that needs to be fundamental to our existence. 1 Corinthians 3, 7, So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. In other words, God rewards those who obey His command to spread the good news. God rewards those who go out and sow the seed. Again, that's the point on the board. God's blessings are bestowed upon those who humbly accept the Great Commission as the primary joy set before them. Each day they are alive on earth. In fact, as we just saw, the Lord promises to reward those who obey His command to spread the good news. So the practical side, obviously, is if you've been miserable, maybe you've not been following this command. If you've been miserable, maybe you don't have the right perspective about why you're here. If you've been unhappy, maybe you don't understand that your purpose, what your purpose is in life. I can't think of a worse tragedy than to live and get up every day and not understand your purpose or that you even have a purpose. What a tragedy. What a tragedy to be created, to bring glory to God. God saves you. You're supposed to bring glory to God and you don't know your purpose. What a tragedy. So it's been a nice reminder for all of us and one of the key vehicles for we believers to do this is to focus our attention on the grace and mercy of God. It sort of um, encourages us. It reminds us to focus on the grace and mercy of God that the fact that you're even here with a purpose is that not amazing? 
You were dead in your transgressions. You were dead in sin. That's how you were born, spiritually dead in sin, inanimate, unable to do anything. And by the grace and mercy of God, here you sit learning this lesson saying, this is pretty darn cool. I actually have a purpose in my life. So one of the key vehicles for we believers to do is to focus um, our attention on the grace and mercy of God as we have been uh, this past week or so. This idea of living for others by spreading the gospel is something that is, frankly, completely foreign to today's falsely professing Christian. I mean, that's one of the hallmarks, I believe. And I think that's what the Bible teaches. That's one of the hallmarks of a false or falsely professing Christian is that they don't live for others. This idea of, of, of understanding this purpose and embracing it and then living for others is foreign to them. They're only interested in themselves. I just want my free ticket to heaven. Can I have it now? Because I need to get back to my life. <laughs> I'm not here living for others. I'm living for me. Even my so-called profession of faith was for me. It wasn't even an issue of gratitude or repentance. It was just, can I have my free ticket to heaven because I heard about this hell place and it seems really bad, so what must I do to gain eternal life? So let's read a tremendously telling passage that Scott alluded to on Thursday up here on the board, Exodus 33:18 and 19. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Any questions? Now this really puts the stick in the mud, so to speak. Puts a pillar right down the center that's immutable, that's immovable, that never changes. Because God is the sovereign. He says, I'm going to show mercy on who I want to show mercy. I'm going to show grace on who I want to show grace. Compassion, love, and kindness. These are mine to give. Man doesn't come along and say with his reason and sensibilities and his disgusting lawyering and say, well, if you're a loving God, then you have to do these things for me. You have to accommodate me in my ridiculous flesh. He says, no, that's not how it works. You want to know how my grace and mercy are? You want to know what my grace and mercy looks like? Read your Bible. Stop speculating about me. Stop pretending you know me when you don't. Don't say, well, you can have your God, and you can have your God, and you can have this other God over here, and we'll all pretend it's the same God, because that's not me. I'm found in here. I walked on the earth. My name was Jesus Christ. You want to know about me? Just like Jesus said, you've got to know my Son, says the Father. And this is, he is the Word, John 1.14. The Word became flesh. But so many people, so many so-called Christians say they know God and they don't even read their Bible. Never mind church, they don't even read their Bible. So how do they know God if they don't, if they don't read the Bible, the, His Word? They go out, they, what, they just speculate. Well, I think that God loves me, so since He loves me, He's going to give me a little smile on my face every day. Well, maybe he takes that all away. Look at Frank. Look at some of these sick people. He can, like Job said, or Job. Right? Right? 
The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show compassion to whom I will show compassion. Period. He's sovereign. Do we forget this? Do we forget, do we forget that when we evangelize people? Do we go out and evangel- give people a watered-down, disgusting, mini-gospel with a pathetic guy on a cross that seemed like a nice guy? Do we give them that because we want, we're afraid to give people the truth? That God is sovereign and righteous in every way? And that He decides what mercy is defined as? And He gets to decide what grace is defined as? And He gets to define what love is? So that is a passage that Paul wrote, uh, quote, excuse me, quotes later on in the New Testament to defend the same error in unprincipled, ungodly attitude towards God's grace and mercy. That is to say that Paul was combating man's fleshly desire to redefine God's grace and mercy. To redefine. There's a lot of smart people uh, in this world um, that think they're really witty by redefining grace and mercy to accommodate their own flesh and the flesh of others, to widen the gate, so to speak, even though Jesus Christ, the Savior, said the gate is narrow that leads to life. When something's narrow, do you know what we call that in engineering? There are constraints. There are boundary conditions, not to nerd out on you. There are boundary conditions. There are constraints. That's what narrow implies. So again, Paul was combating man's fleshly desire to redefine God's grace and mercy. Why? As always, to proclaim a different gospel. Of course. That's what this is always about. I don't like the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want another gospel. I want another way to make it to heaven. I don't want what God says is true. I don't want to read the Bible. I want to make God what I want him to be, but I still want to wear my shirt that says I'm a Christian. And this is the same thing that we're fighting to this day. Go to Romans 9.14. Romans 9.14. These battles never change. These aren't novel things. Like Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. It's just a different day, different dollar, so to speak. You know, people are people are people. People are always trying to control God, trying to seize control of their own lives. Oh, captain, my captain, I am the captain of my own ship. You get all these so-called impressive poets writing garbage out there and people chew it up. Romans 9.14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Of course not. He's perfect. He's immutable. What he says goes. Verse 15, for he says to Moses, this is the quote I just gave you from Exodus, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Period. So then it does not depend on the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. doesn't matter what you think is mercy. It doesn't matter what you want to be merciful. God decides. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. 
So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he even hardens whom he desires. Whose business is that? God's business. He has mercy on whom he desires, and he, has, and he hardens whom he desires. Up here on the board, let me give you some perspective on that. He has mercy on whom he desires. This completely annihilates any attempt by man to redefine or even control God's mercy and therefore alter the gospel of his Son. God decides upon whom he bestows mercy. Man does not decide for he is at the mercy of the Lord, the judge. Again, he has mercy on whom he desires. This completely annihilates any attempt by man to redefine or control God's mercy and therefore alter the gospel of his Son. God decides upon whom he bestows mercy. Man does not decide, for he is at the mercy of the Lord, the judge. Verse 19 you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who will resist his, who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man? Here's the perspective change. Wait a minute. Let's just stop the presses here. Who the heck are you to be questioned? I'm your creator. I'm the sovereign. I can do anything I want, whenever I want, however I want. You don't have the option to question. You want to find out about me? And that's your line of questioning? That's fine. You want to challenge me? Well, now gird your loins. Suit up. You want to spar with God? You're going to lose every time, if you're honest. So he says, on the, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? The audacity, in other words. Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. In other words, God has everything under control. God decides who he's even going to save. You see, that's the problem. We're going to get to this in a moment. That's the problem. Everybody may say, oh, well, I want, you know, they, maybe they're just trying to fiddle with mercy a little bit. No, they're trying to change the gospel. The gospel is the end goal, and Satan in the kingdom of darkness knows this. So instead of a frontal assault, like, oh, you know, Jesus was a phony, they start twisting and turning, underlining or under... Uh, underpinned doctrines like mercy, grace, and love. Because if you pervert those, it's really hard to build an accurate gospel. And that's what we see in so-called modern Christianity today. Individuals who have the audacity to question God. Well, the gate's not wide enough, so let's widen it a little bit more by redefining grace and mercy. And as I taught last week, to the point, where you don't even have to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you don't even have to be saved by Jesus Christ to actually so-called get to heaven. That's how obnoxious today's Christianity has become. That's how far, astr how far 
Christianity has strayed from the actual truth. So just, I was reflecting on this because it's painful. It's painful to think about what's going on in so-called Christianity. So I need you to concentrate. An overarching theme in uh, our studies lately has been this up here on the board. And this has been coming up in my own studies, privately even. On the topic of grace and mercy, the grace and mercy found in the Bible are predominantly relating to salvation and, and deliverance principles. In other words, if you read your Bible, that's the perspective. God says, I will have mercy on who I have mercy on. I'll show grace to who I'll have compassion. I get to decide. And when God became man, what was his desire? To seek and to save those which were lost. In other words, God's desire is to see everyone saved and to come to the knowledge of Him. So when we talk about grace and mercy, that is the perspective that we are to maintain. We're not supposed to take words like grace and mercy and redefine them so that they're now disjoint from those key, let's call them directives, those key things that God wants to accomplish in this world. And if he says the gate is narrow, then you know what? You want to know what? It's narrow. The grace and mercy found in the Bible are predominantly related or relating to salvation and deliverance principles. They are derived completely from Holy Scripture, not man's sensibilities towards himself or others. Man does not get to decide what grace and mercy are even defined as or love. For example, the ecumenical church. God loves people so much that he'll consider himself a liar, that he'll call his own son a liar who said, I'm the way and the truth and the life, and nobody gets to the Father but through me. That's how much he loves his love is so unbounded, unconstrained, that he'll consider himself a liar. He'll, forgo- he'll compromise his own essence when he's immutable. Okay, something's not, no, nothing, this doesn't add up. That's the whole point. But there are so-called Christians nowadays that are out there teaching that. I've, I've shared many instances that I've come across Oh, but God loves the Muslim, and God loves the Hindu. Yeah, but he doesn't believe in Jesus. Has he heard? Yeah, even if he's heard the gospel, and he doesn't. No, he's, God's so loving, he's just going to, you know, bring him up to heaven. The grace and mercy found in the Bible are predominantly relating to salvation deliverance principles. They are derived completely from Holy Scripture, not man's sensibilities towards himself or others. In other words, if you read the Bible honestly, some people are like, oh, you read the Bible? Yeah. If you read the Bible honestly, you quickly realize that while God is gracious and merciful, His grace and mercy function within certain constraints. They are not unbounded like man wants them to be. They're not pliable terms. They're not negotiable terms. And if you want to understand what those constraints are, then read your Bible. 
In other words, up here on the board, keep concentrating. I know this is like this is sort of heavy. Some of you are gonna have to chew on this stuff. Some not. Some are like, yep, I get it. For example, mercy isn't like a can of paint that man gets to brush all over everything to cover up his fleshly ugliness. In other words, he doesn't get to premeditate all kinds of things knowing that he's just going to pull out this can of so-called mercy and flop paint and just cover it up. God may or may not show you mercy in that situation. He may make you suffer horrifically and deservedly. Just like a person who's in the lake of fire. You said no. I gave you my son. And that was the most gracious, merciful thing I could have ever done. And you said no. So I'm not going to show you mercy the way you want me to show mercy. You said no. So there you go. People think that mercy is like a can of paint, and they just pull it out, and they're just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you might call that a whitewashed tomb. And then they call it by grace. By grace, I just get to be a complete jackass and just pull out the can of mercy. And it's all by grace. Mercy, which some call grace in action, I'm good with that, is neither a crutch nor an enabler. But people with horribly defined, ill-defined definitions for mercy, that's exactly what mercy is. It's an enabler. They say, well, God is merciful and God is gracious. And don't, don't you know that the more I sin, the more grace abounds? Um, you need to go read Romans. Because that's the argument that Paul was making. So then why don't we just all sin our little rear ends off and show the world how gracious God is. And what did Paul say? May it never be. Wrong perspective. Mercy, which is grace in action, is neither a crutch nor an enabler. Read Romans 5 and 6 in your own time and you'll know exactly what this point means. A person who supposes mercy is an enabler is what I would call an abuser of grace. And that's what Paul was arguing against in Romans. It is the absolute wrong perspective to presume such things. Up here on the board, one more point on this topic of concentration. God's grace and mercy are foundational to His plan to save His creatures. They are not meant to be punchlines to man's plan to save himself, regardless if he chooses to call himself a Christian or not. Let me say that again. God's grace and mercy are foundational to His plan to save His creatures. They are not meant to be punchlines to man's plan to save himself. I don't care what you call yourself. I don't care what kind of words. I don't care if you use Jesus in every other sentence in your life for the rest of your life. You have no right to redefine how God saves you or anyone else. You don't get to shoehorn yourself or your loved ones through the narrow gate. If he says it is unbelievably gracious and merciful of me 
to come down, read Philippians 2 while you're at it, 7 and 8, to come down, become a human being, and die for your sins. But you got to believe in me. you got to believe in my Son. If I say that's gracious and merciful enough, then you know what? It is. And you and nobody else get to choose otherwise or say otherwise. Well, that's not wide enough because what about so-and-so over there? What about so-and-so over there? What about them? Who are you, old man, to question me? That's the Bible. That's the Bible. Either you believe the Bible or you don't. Either you want the truth or you want to lie. It's really up to you. Remember, I'm just a waiter. I just serve up the truth. That is it. That's my job. You reject the truth, I already know. You don't reject me. You, respect, you reject the Spirit who's enabling this message even, who authored the Bible itself. You're not rejecting me. You can take offense with me all you want. I don't care. I don't need to be your friends. I'm here to give you the truth. My job is to serve the great shepherd and do it diligently and accurately. And if you don't like the truth, bye bye See you later. That sounds cold, doesn't it? You think, do you really think that I'm harsh? Have you read your Bibles? You think I'm harsh? You think I'm tough? Have you read your Bibles lately? Do you understand that Jesus, by all accounts, was a judgment preacher? Talked about hell seven times more than heaven? Do you realize that? <laughs> Jesus loves me, this I know. Let's all gather here and sing Kumbaya. I like that gospel better. I like that one better. This one's offensive. Yeah, you know what Jesus was called? A stumbling block, a rock of offense. Wake up. The gospel is going to be the most offensive thing you could ever give some people. To some, the ones beating their breast, their open arms. Finally, I'm home. To others who reject it, it's going to be the, the most offensive thing they've ever heard. And how dare you show up on their doormat with it. But that's God's grace and mercy. <laughs> that's the whole point. Do you understand? By definition, God's grace and mercy being underpinning of the gospel itself, they are actually offensive to the arrogant people in this world. Because they like the other grace and the other mercy that they learned from television or an idiot grandparent or some bastardized version of a religion that's called Christianity. They like that one better. That's what we're fighting against. So it's no wonder why we're pursuing a joy set before us, before us, something transcendent and not daisies and painted on faces. 
Listen, I smile and laugh as much as anyone. That's not my point here this morning. My point is you have a purpose, and that's not it. The righteous perspective is to see grace and mercy through the gateway to salvation. You might say from the inside, from God's perspective. Not from the outside, from the perspective of those supposing they may climb into the sheepfold over the side. Up here on the board, Jesus spoke about that. John 10.1, up here on the board. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. There are a lot of so-called Christians that are thieves and robbers trying to climb up over the side because they take offense with God's grace and mercy, love, His salvation, therefore Jesus Christ. As Paul wrote to the church in Galatia, such a person is to be accursed. Go to uh, Proverbs 14.11. Proverbs 14.11. And the interesting thing about these people, the interesting thing about this fight, is we're fighting people that suppose, tooth and nail, that they're right. They will fight you, tooth and nail, to say, oh, you don't understand the love of God. I don't. Because this is what the Bible says. Where'd you get your version of it? Well, I've been thinking about it. Yeah. I've been thinking about it. Well, good for you. Why don't you read about it first and then contemplate? Proverbs 14.11 The house of the wicked will be destroyed, but the tent of the upright will flourish. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Last Sunday, the Spirit gave us all a precious gift titled, Thank God for Mercy. This was following a wonderfully placed blog titled, The Advantageous Estate of Brokenness. You see, I'm no different as an under-shepherd than Jesus was, than Paul was. My problem is not with people who are broken. They're ripe soil. My problem is with arrogance. My problem is with a person who proclaims to be this, but they know nothing about this thing they proclaim to be. A Christian, you know, Christian, but they don't know anything about Jesus Christ because they don't read their Bible. Or they read their Bible with a skewed perspective, looking for certain things and plucking out this verse or that verse or this verse or that verse and pinning it up on their corkboard, their little prayer station at home, and they pray to a different God. one that's got them so twisted, that's the one that I have a problem with. That's the one Jesus Christ had a problem with. If you read the Gospels, that's the one Paul had a problem with. That's the one any honest disciple of Jesus Christ has a problem with. It's not with a person who says, it's not even with a person who's terrible, <laughs> who's a complete sinner, a failure, a prostitute, tax collector, a dreg of society. None of us have a problem with that. We say, do you humbly accept the gospel? Come on. We're all sinners. None of us have a problem with that. We have a problem with the arrogant jackass, the lawyer, the one who likes to twist Scripture, 
the one who tries to shoehorn the narrow gate, the one who tries to take Jesus Christ in his own words, his own ministry out of the picture. We have a problem with that person because they're arrogant. And arrogance is unteachable. One of the key principles from our synthesizing these two incredibly fruitful lessons was this up here on the board. Without mercy, mankind has no hope. Thank God for His mercy. Because without it, we'd have no hope. We'd have no hope up here on the board. 1 Corinthians 15, 19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Hence the following recurring principle arose in our study. Our hope is in Christ. Christ is the greatest expression of mercy in the history of the universe. Thank God for Him. Thank God for Jesus Christ. Because our hope is in Him. The greatest expression of, of mercy in the history of the universe. Before we get back to our primary course of study, let's read one last passage on mercy from the very mouth of our Lord and Savior, Master, Great Shepherd, King, Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And to set the context right, just look at who was being drawn to Jesus' sermons. Go to Luke 15, 1. Luke 15, verse 1. Luke 15, 1. Look at who was coming to him. Now, all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Wow, that's surprising, isn't it? Huh. Did he kick him away? Nope. He welcomed him. Come on. You guys are obviously more humble than these jackasses over here. These Pharisees, these scribes, these Sadducees, the ones who have taken my word and twisted it. I'll take you any day of the week over them. Again, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. This reminds me of up here on the board, John 6.44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Who does God draw? The humble. Who is he opposed to? The arrogant. James 4, 6. 1 Peter. It's not rocket science. So it makes sense that these sinners who were humble were drawn to him. But look, again, now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to him to listen to him. However, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. What's their problem? Arrogance. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. 
And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Up here on the board. One sinner who repents. This is almost the theme, the preeminent theme in this entire chapter. One sinner who repents. This is a salvation, a gospel chapter. Joy in heaven depends upon repentance. God is merciful to the humble, granting them repentance and faith that saves. To the contrary, without repentance, none of this is granted. This is how God's mercy is articulated, bounded, constrained. Joy in heaven depends on repentance. We just saw that. God is merciful to the humble, granting them repentance and faith that saves. To the contrary, without repentance, none of this is granted. This is how God's mercy is articulated, bounded, constrained. That's a wonderful image of the mercy of God. Here's another parable on this topic. Verse 8. Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over, you got it, one sinner who repents. Again, joy in heaven depends on this thing. God is merciful to the humble, granting them repentance and faith that saves. To the contrary, without these things, none of this is granted. God's mercy is articulated, bounded, and constrained this way. And then, of course, one of the most famous parables of all, which really is a picture of repentance, and as we read this, as we're about to read this, keep an eye on the lifestyle in view, not just the prodigal son's mental estate, though that is also in view. I want you to realize contextually that Jesus was continuing to drive the same basic point about salvation home. The same basic point about salvation home. When is there rejoicing in heaven? When one sinner repents. One sinner. So you can imagine with this elongated parable what was going on in heaven if this was an actual story, so to speak. Think about that as we read it. So I want you to be very clear on this. These parables, or shall I say this collective of parables, you notice it's just one sort of thought. There's a reason why they're stacked the way they are. This collective of parables are meant to drive a single point home, the gospel. Jesus came to what? Seeking to save that which was lost. We've already talked about a lost sheep. We talked about a lost coin. So what is he talking about? Salvation. These aren't so-called spiritual maturity issues. This is a gospel passage. This is about salvation proper. This is about repentance. Because that's when there's joy in heaven. When one sinner repents. So this collective is meant to drive a single point home, the gospel. 
Although there are lessons for we believers in them regarding the nature of our God, these parables are meant to speak to salvation proper, the gospel according to Jesus himself. So do not make the mistake of overanalyzing them and possibly turning them into a treatise on the daily lives of believers because they are not. I've seen people, I'm telling you, people have written books on this next parable. It's not that complicated. You don't have to be a PhD to understand the Bible. You have to have the faith of a what? You don't have to be a PhD. Don't let anybody ever browbeat you and say you're unqualified. Throw them out of your house. Everyone in here is qualified to read the Bible. Why? Because God has qualified them. Not man. Man's the one who likes the abominated, perverted definitions. Things like grace and mercy and love. And you have to be a PhD just to understand what the heck they're saying. You know how I know? Been there, done that. Read many of these guys. You're welcome to read a bunch. I have, what, hundreds of books back there on the shelf that were given to me in passing. And every single so-called theologian disagrees on something. So where does that leave you, an honest student? You ready? Ta-da! This is where it leaves you. You don't have to be brilliant to read your Bible. You just have to be willing and open and humble. And the Spirit, our great helper, will teach you. I'm here to guide you. Don't give up on the gift of past the teacher. It's a critical point. It's a gift. It's a spiritual gift. And I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Don't give up on the gift, but please, this is not out of your reach. May it never be. Anybody ever tells you that, tell them to pound salt. Or tell them to come see me. I'm always looking for it. <laughs> a little... Anyways. Luke 15, 11. And he said, A man had two sons... The younger of them said to his father, so stop reading it. All right, don't, don't do this thing, all right? The father represents this guy, and the son represents... No, just read it. Just read it. It's in keeping with the other two parables. The angels rejoice over one sinner who repents. This is about salvation. He said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me as one of your hired men. So now we see humility coming in. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. God gives grace to who? The humble. 
Mercy is grace in action. What you're seeing is the same old thing. Mercy in action. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. And in your sight, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Up here on the board. Repentance and mercy. This is what true repentance looks like. A contrite heart before a good father who is willing to show his humble son mercy unto salvation. This is a rescue for a humble person. Again, this is what true repentance looks like. A contrite heart before a good father who is willing to show his humble son mercy unto salvation. Verse 22, But the father said to his slaves, Now what did we see? There is much rejoicing in heaven over one person who repents. What do you see here? The father says to his slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Does this sound like rejoicing to you? It does to me. What just happened? A humble man repented. Do you see it? It's the same thing. This is a gospel parable. This is about someone being saved. This is about conversion stretched out like most of us have. You know, we go off into the world and we find out and get exhausted and we realize, man, we're a mess. And for you believers out there, I'm assuming everyone's a believer here. I don't know. You're saved. You repent. And you reach out the way this guy is reaching out. In a sense, beating his own breast. I'm, no, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy of anything. And the father says, now I can save you. And what happens? You see rejoicing, just like we saw in the other two parables. But the father said to his slaves, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet and bring the fattened calf, kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now, his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in, and his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, now think of the change of perspectives. One had a good perspective, one didn't. Who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes? You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. Again, the parable of the prodigal son is about repentance that leads to salvation. It is one of the sweetest illustrations of God's mercy unto salvation, hence the point on the board. This is what true repentance looks like, a contrite heart before a good father who is willing to show his humble son mercy unto salvation salvation. And this is why the previous two parables, the lost sheep and the lost coin, highlighted the key facet of salvation that leads to one leads one to realize how great God's mercy is up here on the board. That's all the prodigal son is. It's this principle all over again. The same one we saw in short form, an abbreviated format, 
the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost coin. One sinner who repents. Joy in heaven depends upon repentance. God is merciful to the humble, granting them repentance and faith that saves. To the contrary, without repentance, none of this is granted. This is how God's mercy is articulated, bounded, and constrained. And just to put things into perspective before I close, the Spirit's been teaching you that, look, a perverted version of grace, mercy, and love is if would be if the father um, just simply covered his son, said, you don't have to come back, you don't have to repent, I just love you so much, I'll enable you in your prostitute-seeking whatever-type life living you have. That's how much I love you. Did he do that? No. No, he didn't. You know why? Because that's not God's mercy. God mercifully, gracefully received the repentant person back, right? And he was willing to come through the narrow gate. He said, I'm going to come to my father. But the father's mercy is not so perverted that he said, you can go ahead and I'll meet you out there in spiritual death and I'll just cover you up and let you live the way you've been living because I love you. I'm so loving, I'm going to enable you. Isn't that the folly of the poor parent nowadays? I love you so much, I'll enable you. That's not love. That's called enablement. That's no good. It's never been good for any child ever born. There has to be constraints to grace, mercy, and love. Otherwise, they become perverted. Otherwise, those things can become the very damaging instruments to the demise of your own kids. You see, if God perverted His own mercy and grace and love and and began to accommodate and compromise His own integrity, He'd be hurting His own kids. He'd be hurting the very ones He's trying to save. Right? Did not the prodigal son have to hit rock bottom to come back? Well, if the father just kept keeping him off rock bottom and enabling him, he never would have come back. He would have never been humbled. That's what Jesus was teaching when he taught his gospel. That's it. I'm looking for sinners. I came to save save sinners. Not arrogant people who say they know me. And later on I say, I never knew you. I didn't come to save those people. I came to save Humble people. Those that are willing to accept the truth. A truth that we know in much greater detail in the Bible. Amen? That's Barheads. Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege, this opportunity to gather together to fellowship, to break bread, the very bread of life, Father. Thank you for truth that sets us free. Thank you for always making it available to us, to the humble. Thank you for giving us your promises. We know that if we seek first your kingdom, all these things are added unto us. Father, may we never become familiar 
with your grace, your mercy, your love, but rather embrace them for what they truly are. Father, may we defend the gospel of your Son, our Lord and Savior, until the day we die or are raptured. We ask for your strength and your guidance, of course, through your Spirit, in doing so, that he continues to encourage us the way he has, that our ears are always open, that our hearts are open to truth, to said guidance. We ask for your blessings and traveling mercies upon those that are here as we take these things out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs them so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen.